372, Chapter 7. Book Talk begins at 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Welcome to Craftlid, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 372, Thinking the Thinks. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle at Etsy. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Subbable, the site where you can go to support your favorite content creators. Visit subbable.com slash craftlit and sign up for perks and fun. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. So can someone tell me where January went? I, I seem to have misplaced my January. Holy cow, it's just moving along at a shocking clip. But that also means that news and crafty stuff has also been moving along at a shocking clip. And it's all gone whoosh right past me. I'm still working on interviewing Diane over at Crafty Pod, and I have a couple other interviews lined up. I did one earlier this week with uh, Nathan over at the Christian Humanist Podcast. This one will be coming out, I think, sometime in the next month. I'm not editing the audio on this one, so I'm not sure about deadlines, but... On a craft side of things, I think you're going to be really fascinated by the person that we were able to interview this time, all because of fabulous listener Kristen. So that's something to look forward to. And links, links, crafty links on the show notes for you. We have a link that was shared on comments a few episodes ago on thimbles and fitting thimbles properly, something that I had mentioned I have a hard time with. So that is a huge thank you to Janet. Janet is the one who shared that. So awesome. Thank you. I had a couple of nights where I couldn't get to sleep. And so <laughs> I found myself looking at Pinterest. Well, Pinterest and Instagram. I have found that they are marvelous things to look at if you are lying in bed next to your partner and you don't want to wake them up, you can open a tablet and keep the light down low. And Pinterest and Instagram are really very calming. It's, oh, pretty pictures. And I started looking at English paper piecing on both. And I found my favorite hashtag, I think possibly ever. It was in Instagram. I found, do you think I'm hexy? H-E-X-I-E. It's because of English paper-pieced hexagonal quilts. Uh, very much like the one that I had repaired before, there are some amazing quilts that people are doing 
including one a listener has worked on. And I looked at this so long ago, I can't remember who it was. She'll, I know she'll ping me and I'll be able to correct that mistake. But her, her, her hexagons are half an inch across. Just think about that for a moment. Quilting, paper piecing, half inch hexagons. I'm so overwhelmed at the thought of that. I can barely handle what I'm doing in their inches. Or, well, the diamonds are an inch and a half and the hexagons are an inch. But, but be that as it may, very cool stuff under hashtag do you think I'm hexy? And I think that one was on Instagram. I do not think that was on Pinterest. Although the English papers pieced quilts that you can find on Pinterest are also stunning. And lots of really awesome tutorials are linked out to from Pinterest. That's the other thing that I really like about the uh, Pinterest pages. It's very easy to follow from beautiful picture to informative webpage. And then I started looking at embroidery stitches off of Pinterest, and I found a page of incredibly well and uh, almost ponderously done. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like, she really thinks about how she is going to explain the stitch to you. And then she really has clearly thought about the pictures that she is going to take. She has pondered on this a lot. And uh, and so I will put a link to those tutorials as well. Because once you're done with all of the hexagonal joining or the diamond joining or mix and match joining, you have to quilt the top. And you can do some very simple stuff where you just top stitch along in straight lines, depending on which kind of pattern you've put in, whether it's tumbling blocks or the little hexagon flowers or or whatever. Or you can kind of treat it like a crazy quilt and do funky embroidery stitches all over it. And I am still working on a crazy quilt for my husband. It was supposed to be his big Christmas present, but he's here. And when I have free time, he's here. And so I'm having a hard time finding, finding time to work on it. Jessica, don't say anything to him. I know uh, Jessica in California, I think, is a listener and she works with my husband. And so, Jessica, you can't say anything to him because that would be bad. And on the same don't listen kind of motif or don't say anything motif, I have a message to play for you. And John Scholes, if you are listening to this episode, you must stop now and tune back in in about two minutes. Okay, so don't don't listen, just Turn the volume off for two minutes. And if you don't hear my voice when you tune back in, turn the volume down again until you hear me and then all will be well. So for everyone who is not John Scholes, here is a message for you. Hi, I'm Judy, also known as Orchard Ranch on Ravelry. Uh, greetings, Craftlit listeners, and hello, Heather. I'm calling to let everyone know about a project being put together, literally, by the John Scholes Appreciation Society, which is really a thread in the Craftlit group on Ravelry. We're making, collecting, and assembling squares for an Afghan to send to John to show that we appreciate him, and we're inviting anybody who wishes to contribute a square. Uh, These squares should be 10 inches square after blocking. They can be knit or crocheted and they can be made with superwash wool or some other kind of washable yarn to make it easy for him. You pick the color, you pick the design. Uh, We're kind of trying to stick to worsted or DK weight yarn so they're similar in weight. 
And some people are finding inspiration in some of the past books and poems that John has read for Craftlet. You can find specific instructions and the address to send them to in the John Scholes Appreciation Society thread on Ravelry. And you can post photographs, ideas, and things like that there and just chat with the rest of us who are over there chatting. So I wanted to make sure that everyone knew about that that doesn't always get over to Ravelry. I hope everybody's uh, having a nice winter and a, a good spring is coming and you're knitting lots of good stuff. Bye. And the fact that he could rhyme the word orange is one of the reasons why Tom Lehrer is such an amazing songwriter and poet. Oh, John, you're back. I'm so glad. So, uh, so there's news, there's goofy segue, and now we continue. Listener Jana Lee, who had information for me about Sherlock Holmes. For those of you who are not premium subscribers, you might be interested to know that when we did Sherlock Holmes, we're doing them in order. It's something that John had wanted to do. And the very first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, was affected, or Conan Doyle was affected deeply by some yellow journalism that was coming out of the United States at the time. And as a consequence, Mormons, who were very much in the news back then, are feature prominently in the story. And since there's a lot about the Mormon religion that has historically been kept secret, um, just like there are many religions where there's there's some mysteries, capital M mysteries, that are reserved for people who are part of that faith— the Mormon religion was the same, and so there were some things that I just wasn't sure about. And I said that on the recordings, the premium recordings, when we started the book. Janalee caught up, heard that, pinged me, and said, I not only have the information for you, I actually have historical diaries and journals and photographs from my family from when they came over to the United States from Scotland and emigrated not just from Scotland to the United States, but up the Mississippi and across the plains, walking, carrying a handcart, holding 100 pounds of their stuff, and, and made it all the way to Utah. A- amazing stories. Just amazing. So, Janalee and I spoke, and by the end of it, I said, you know, I think... Instead of restricting this to a premium episode for for kind of a follow-up on Sherlock Holmes, I'm going to, it's going to take me a while to edit the audio, but I wanted to put it out for everyone because I I don't know. If you are non-Mormon, I have no idea, but I'm assuming that you probably don't know all that much either. And at least, you know, more than kind of what popular culture tells us, which uh, honestly isn't much. But the, the history is fascinating. And some of it, Conan Doyle got right. Uh, location, descriptions of locations, things like that. Most of it he got wrong. And, and we'll be able to fill you in on, on those things as well. So, huge thank you to Jana Lee, who lives where I used to go and stay in Utah with my cousins. So I got to check up on a few old places, on the homestead and Chick's Diner and, and the proper placement of your body in relation to Mount Tippinokas. <laughs> because you are supposed to view it from the east side, and we agree on that. So that was good. Listener Lorna 
sent a link. It's a YouTube video link to a 1978 TV show from Britain that was performed live in front of the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And the second scene, which begins at six minutes and 36 seconds, the second scene has an English paper pieced quilt being worked on like it's no thing. It's just what she's doing. And my assumption is that everyone would know what she was doing. Her hexagons are much bigger than mine, though. They've got to be two or three inches across and they look beautiful. So that's a fun thing to watch. You can look at that in the show notes. Again, just skip forward to uh, six minutes and 36 seconds because anything in the beginning is going to be lost on you. It's a serial and that means we don't have any context for the jokes that they're going over. Herland. Pockets. Pockets in Herland. They get brought up again today. And I am so thankful that one of our fabulous listeners, Juliana, 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 I think. I'm looking at the spelling. I'm going with Juliana. She uh, left a really fabulous comment in last week's episode uh, comment section. And I... I don't actually know how often you're able to get to the comments because I know a lot of us, more and more of us, listen kind of on the fly to podcasts. So I am going to read this comment to you. She writes, What about girls in pockets? Heather brought up pockets with a reference to Peter Pan. We commonly associate pockets with boys, such as Tom Sawyer. Pockets encourage young scientists, inventors, and entrepreneurs to collect specimens for study, parts for fiddling with, or treasures for barter. I have no doubt that grown women who use pockets for work would see to it that girls have pockets for play as soon as possible. For further reading, I recently came across this book at the library, quote, From Rags to Riches, A History of Girls' Clothing in America by Leslie Sills in 2005. And we have a link to the Amazon page for it. And this is very exciting because this is exactly what we were talking about before. She goes on to say, this all grabbed my attention because I had just listened to a particular TED Talk. The TED Talk is called The Decline of Play. This is from uh, Peter Gray, and he was at one of the TEDx uh, symposia. So there is a link to his YouTube video as well. And then Juliana goes on, through the centuries, the marked difference in clothing for boys and girls had denoted different expectations for and enforced different arenas of play. Thus, even while rights and social equality for grown women progressed, the trickle-down to girls was hindered in part by clothing and license to play. In direct reference to this chapter, Dr. Gray, the one who did the TED Talk, he mentions peer cooperation as one of the necessary skills learned in early play. It stands to reason that a culture that raises girls only to be married off ends up with a host of fiercely competitive debutantes of only skin-deep social graces. And I think Juliana's point is absolutely dead on. And it's one of the things that actually really surprised me in my conversation with my dad, because I think towards uh, later on in our conversation, I said something about how, how the one thing I could think of that girls will always compete for is guys, attention from guys, or depending on what community you are a part of, attention from the desired other uh, whether that's someone of the the same or the opposite sex, that that would be 
something that we are driven towards for, as Juliana says, kind of this biological imperative that if your only option for finding someone to spend the rest of your life with is being married off, then that's going to be a particularly important goal. And as much as I like to think that we've evolved, you know, a long way since 1915. Wow, it's been 100 years, right? It's because it's 2015 right now. Holy cow. Uh, I, kind of, I kind of wonder, I kind of wonder how far we've actually come sometimes. And then when I am full of despair and at a low ebb, people like Amy in New Zealand send me a link to a podcast like Backstory and have me listen to a particular episode. And I would like to, with their permission, play you a clip of that episode right now. To wrap things up today, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at a novel that in a lot of ways encapsulates how Americans thought about cleanliness at the turn of the 20th century. The novel is called Herland, and it was published in 1915 by an author and social reformer named Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The, story the book may not have been a commercial success, explorers but who stumble onto an astonishing sight. Herland, a nation consisting entirely of women. There are neat towns with sturdy houses, orchards of fruit trees, well-built infrastructure. Most of all, it's clean. They comment about how there's no dirt, there's no smoke, and there's no noise. This is Kristen Egan, a professor of English at Mary Baldwin College. And they just can't get over how clean it is. And they even say things like the streets say, of her land two were cleanliness as right away. as a well There's floor. the domestic side, starched linen and sparkling dishes. But there's also the world outside the home. In addition to the lack of pollution, the women practice composting, they practice sustainable agriculture, they only grow fruit-bearing trees, um, they don't bury dead bodies, they only cremate people. It just goes on and on. So they're doing everything they can to create an environment that is sustainable. The connection between cleanliness and what... You can listen to the whole section. It's a not very long segment, maybe six minutes long on the Backstory Radio podcast. It's actually a syndicated radio show, but it is also disseminated as a podcast. And I don't know that I agree with all of their findings, but I think the point is an important one to take. That Gilman, who is writing for a female audience, knew that a couple of things were irksome. One was not being in control of one's own destiny, whether that was in voting or in deciding where, when, and whom to marry, or when one was ready to have children rather than having it be forced on them by uh, a man. And there were other things going on too. This is also, as the suffrage movement is on the rise, you also have the parallel movement of uh, people who were pro-prohibition, which I mentioned before. So you have a group of women who are tired of getting the bejujus kicked out of them at night when their husbands come home drunk, and you have that group. And when we're talking about things that are um, that make life dirty or messy, that would be one of them. Drunk men in the streets are not clean. 
(laughs) and they don't do clean things while they're out on the streets. So there is that. There's also the fact that the urban centers were really filthy. (laughs) They were. There was still a lot of coal being burnt. Things were still dusty and gray and dirty. It was not London pea soup thick fog necessarily, but it wasn't the cleanest environment you've ever seen. And Gilman's point is an interesting one. And it's certainly one that I think men will say they are more on the same side with now than men polled 100 years ago might have said, which is thinking about the future. When we think about leaving our place here in the world for our children and our children's children, there is that sense of responsibility that I think we feel of, of wanting to leave things in good shape. Because who wants to kill your kid off in advance, you know? It really. Why would I want to do something today that's going to hurt my child tomorrow? Apparently, that kind of thinking was fairly radical in Gilman's day. And in fact, Vanessa is helping me hook up with a couple of scholars who I will be able to actually pose that question to directly to, uh, to find out what was politically and socially going on for women at the time. What, what were women actually legally prevented from doing as opposed to socially prevented from doing? You know, you couldn't walk down the street wearing a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. That would have been a social thing, not necessarily a legal one. Uh, but but there are other uh, larger legal questions going on at the same time as well. So Gilman's desire to paint her land as a clean place takes many forms, some of them completely understandable and things that we can get behind, and some things a little more uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about some of those after we listen to today's chapter, just like Uh, They talked about if you go and listen to the entire little part of uh, Backstory Radio, you'll hear you'll hear them talking about as well. And so with those things in mind, here we go. Listening to today's chapter, chapter seven of Herland, read for you by Charles Hutchinson. Chapter seven, our growing modesty. Being at last considered sufficiently tamed and trained to be trusted with scissors, we barbered ourselves as best we could. A close-trimmed beard is certainly more comfortable than a full one. Razors, naturally, they could not supply. With so many old women, you'd think there'd be some razors, sneered Terry. Whereat Jeff pointed out that he never before had seen such complete absence of facial hair on women. Looks to me as if the absence of men made them more feminine in that regard anyhow, he suggested. Well, it's the only one, then, Terry reluctantly agreed. A less feminine lot I never saw. A child apiece doesn't seem to be enough to develop what I call motherliness. Terry's idea of motherliness was the usual one, involving a baby in arms or a little flock about her knees, and the complete absorption of the mother in said baby or flock. A motherliness which dominated society, which influenced every art and industry, 
which absolutely protected all childhood and gave it the most perfect care and training, did not seem motherly to Terry. We had become well used to the clothes. They were quite as comfortable as our own, in some ways more so, and undeniably better looking. As to pockets, they left nothing to be desired. That second garment was fairly quilted with pockets. They were most ingeniously arranged so as to be convenient to the hand and not inconvenient to the body, and were so placed as at once to strengthen the garment and add decorative lines of stitching. In this, as in so many other points we had now to observe, there was shown the action of a practical intelligence, coupled with fine artistic feeling and, apparently, untrammeled by any injurious influences. Our first step of comparative freedom was a personally conducted tour of the country. No pentagonal bodyguard now, only our special tutors, and we got on famously with them. Jeff said he loved Zava like an ant, only jollier than any ant I ever saw. So Mel and I was chummy as could be, the best of friends. But it was funny to watch Terry and Maudine. She was patient with him and courteous, but it was like the patience and courtesy of some great man, say a skilled, experienced diplomat with a schoolgirl. Her grave acquiescence with his most preposterous expression of feeling. Her genial laughter, not only with, but I often felt at him, though impeccably polite, her innocent questions, which almost invariably led him to say more than he intended, Jeff and I found it all amusing to watch. He never seemed to recognize that quiet background of superiority. When she dropped an argument, he always thought he had silenced her. When she laughed, he thought it was a tribute to his wit. I hated to admit it to myself how much Terry had sunk in my esteem. Jeff felt it too, I'm sure but neither of us admitted it to the other. At home, we had measured him with other men, and though we knew his failings, he was by no means an unusual type. We knew his virtues, too, and they had always seemed more prominent than the faults. Measured among women, our women at home, I mean, he had always stood high. He was visibly popular. Even where his habits were known, there was no discrimination against him, in some cases, his reputation for what was felicitously termed gaiety seemed a special charm. But here, against the calm wisdom and quiet restrained humor of these women, with only that blessed Jeff and my inconspicuous self to compare with, Terry did stand out rather strong. As a man among men, he didn't. As a man among I shall have to say females, he did. His intense masculinity seemed only fit complement to their intense femininity. But here he was all out of drawing. Moadine was a big woman with a balanced strength that seldom showed. Her eye was as quietly watchful as a fencer's. She maintained a pleasant relation with her charge, but I doubt if many, even in that country, could have done as well. He called her Maud amongst ourselves and said she was a good old soul, but a little slow, wherein he was quite wrong. Needless to say, he called Jeff's teacher Java, 
and sometimes mocha or plain coffee when especially mischievous, chicory, and even postum. But Samel rather escaped this form of humor, save for a rather forced Somel. Don't you people have but one name? He asked one day, after we had been introduced to a whole group of them, all with pleasant, few-syllabled strange names like the ones we knew. Oh, yes, Moadine told him. A good many of us have another name, as we get on in life, a descriptive one. That is the name we earn. Sometimes even that is changed or added to in an unusually rich life, such as our present land mother, what you call president or king, I believe. She was called Mira, even as a child. That means thinker. Later was added Du, Du Mera, the wise thinker. And now we all know her as O Du Mera, great and wise thinker. You shall meet her. No surnames at all, then? pursued Terry with his sometimes patronizing air. No family name? Why, no, she said. Why should we? We are all descended from a common source, all one family in reality. You see, our comparatively brief and limited history gives us that advantage at least. But uh, does not each mother want her own child to bear her name? I asked. No, why should she? The child has its own. Why, for, for identification, so people will know whose child she is. We keep the most careful record, said Somel. Each one of us has our exact life of descent all the way back to our dear first mother. There are many reasons for doing that, but as to everyone knowing which child belongs to which mother, why should she? Here, as in so many other instances, we were led to feel the difference between the purely maternal and the paternal attitude of mind, that the element of personal pride seemed strangely lacking. How about your other works? asked Jeff. Don't you sign your names to them? Books and statues and so on? Yes, surely. We are all glad and proud to. Not only books and statues, but all kinds of work. You will find little names on the houses, on the furniture, on the dishes sometimes, because otherwise one is likely to forget, and we want to know to whom to be grateful. You speak as if it were done for the convenience of the consumer, not the pride of the producer, I suggested. It's both, said Samel. We have pride enough in our work. Then why not in your children, urged Jeff. But we have. We're magnificently proud of them, she insisted. Then uh, why not sign them, said Terry triumphantly. Moadine turned to him with her slightly quizzical smile. Because the finished product is not a private one. When they are babies, we do speak of them at times as Essilato or Novinzamil. But that is merely descriptive and conversational. In the records, of course, the child stands in her own line of mothers. But in dealing with it personally, it is Lato or Amel without dragging in its ancestors. But have you names enough to give a new one to each child? Assuredly we have, for each living generation. 
Then they asked about our methods and found first that we did so and so, and then that other nations did differently. Upon which they wanted to know which method has been proved best. And we had to admit that so far as we knew, there had been no attempt at comparison, each people pursuing its own custom in the fond conviction of superiority, and either despising or quite ignoring the others. With these women, the most salient quality in all their institutions was reasonableness. When I dug into the records to follow out any line of development, that was the most astonishing thing, the conscious effort to make it better. They had early observed the value of certain improvements and easily inferred that there was room for more and took the greatest pains to develop two kinds of minds, the critic and inventor. Those who showed an early tendency to observe, to discriminate, to suggest, were given special training for that function. And some of their highest officials spent their time in the most careful study of one or another branch of work, with a view to its further improvement. In each generation, there was sure to arrive some new mind to detect faults and show need of alterations and the whole corps of inventors was at hand to apply their special faculty at the point criticized and offer suggestions. We had learned by this time not to open a discussion on any of their characteristics without first priming ourselves to answer questions about our own methods. So I kept rather quiet on this matter of conscious improvement. We were not prepared to show our own way was better. There was growing in our minds, at least in Jeff's and mine, a keen appreciation of the advantages of this strange country and its management. Terry remained critical. We laid most of it to his nerves. He certainly was irritable. The most conspicuous feature of the whole land was the perfection of its food supply. We had begun to notice from that very first walk in the forest, the first partial view from our plane, now we were taken to see this mighty garden and shown its methods of culture. The country was about the size of Holland, some 10 or 12,000 square miles. One could lose a good many Hollands along the forest-smothered flanks of those mighty mountains. They had a population of about 3 million, not a large one, but quality is something. 3 million is quite enough to allow for considerable variation, and these people varied more widely than we could at first account for. Terry had insisted that if they were parthenogenic, they'd be alike as so many ants or aphids. He urged their visible differences as proof that there must be men somewhere. But when we asked them in our later, more intimate conversations, how they accounted for so much divergence without cross-fertilization, they attributed partly to the careful education which followed each slight tendency to differ and partly to the law of mutation. This they had found in their work with plants and fully proven in their own case. Physically, they were more alike than we as they lacked all morbid or excessive types. They were tall, strong, healthy, and beautiful as a race but differed individually in a wide range of feature, coloring, and expression. But surely the most important growth is in the mind and in the things we make, urged Somel. 
Do you find your physical variation accompanied by proportionate variation in ideas, feelings, and products? Or among people who look more alike, do you find their internal life and their work as similar? We were rather doubtful on this point and inclined to hold that there was more of a chance of improvement in greater physical variation. It uh, certainly should be, Zava admitted. We have always thought a grave initial misinformation to have lost half our little world. Perhaps that is one reason why we have so striven for conscious improvement. But acquired traits are not transmissible, Terry declared. Weissman has proved that. They never disputed our absolute statements, only made notes of them. If that is so, then our improvement must be due either to mutation or solely to education, she gravely pursued. We certainly have improved. It may be that all these higher qualities were latent in the original mother, that careful education is bringing them out, and that our personal differences depend on slight variation in prenatal condition. I, th I think it is more in your accumulated culture, Jeff suggested, and in the amazing psychic growth you have made. We know very little about methods of real soul culture, and you seem to know a great deal. Be that as it may, they certainly presented a higher level of active intelligence and of behavior than we had so far really grasped. Having known in our lives several people who showed the same delicate courtesy and were equally pleasant to live with, at least when they wore their company manners, we had assumed that our companions were a carefully chosen few. Later, we were more and more impressed that all this gentle breeding was breeding, that they were born to it, reared in it, that it was as natural and universal with them as the gentleness of doves or the alleged wisdom of serpents. As for the intelligence, I confess that this was the most impressive and to me most mortifying of any single feature of her land. We soon ceased to comment on this or other matters which to them were such obvious commonplaces as to call forth embarrassing questions about our own conditions. This was nowhere better shown than in that matter of food supply, which I will now attempt to describe. Having improved their agriculture to the highest point and carefully estimated the number of persons who could comfortably live on their square miles, one would think that that was all there was to be done. But they had not thought so. To them the country was a unit. It was theirs. They themselves were a unit, a conscious group. They thought in terms of community. As such, their time sense was not limited to the hopes and ambitions of an individual life. Therefore, they habitually considered and carried out plans for improvement which might cover centuries. I had never seen, had scarcely imagined human beings undertaking such a work as the deliberate replanting of an entire forest area with different kinds of trees. Yet this seemed to them the simplest common sense, like a man's plowing up an inferior lawn and reseeding it. Now every tree bore fruit, edible fruit, that is. In the case of one tree, in which they took especial pride, it was originally no fruit at all, that is, none humanly edible, yet was so beautiful that they wished to keep it. For nine hundred years they had experimented, and now showed us this particularly lovely, graceful tree, 
with a profuse crop of nutritious seeds. They had early decided that trees were the best food plants, requiring far less labor in tilling the soil and bearing a larger amount of food for the same ground space, also doing more to preserve and enrich the soil. Due regard had been paid to seasonable crops and their fruit and nuts, grains and berries, kept on almost the year through. On the higher part of the country, near the backing wall of the mountains, they had a real winter with snow. Toward the southeastern point, where there was a large valley with a lake whose outlet was subterranean, the climate was like that of California, and citrus fruits, figs, and olives grew abundantly. What impressed me particularly was their scheme of fertilization. Here was this little shut-in piece of land where one would have thought an ordinary people would have been starved out long ago or reduced to an annual struggle for life. These careful culturalists had worked out a perfect scheme of refeeding the soil with all that came out of it, all the scraps and leavings of their food, plant waste from lumber work or textile industry, all the solid matter from the sewage, properly treated and combined, everything which came from the earth went back to it. The practical result was like that in any healthy forest. An increasingly valuable soil was being built instead of the progressive impoverishment so often seen in the rest of the world. When this first burst upon us, we made such approving comments that they were surprised that such obvious common sense should be praised asked what our methods were, and we had some difficulty in, uh, well, diverting them by referring to the extent of our own land and the admitted carelessness with which we had skimmed the cream of it. At least we thought we had diverted them. Later I found this besides keeping a careful and accurate account of all we told them. They had a sort of skeleton chart on which the things we said and the things we palpably avoided saying were all set down and studied. It really was child's play for those profound educators to work out a painfully accurate estimate of our conditions in some lines. When a given line of observation seemed to lead to some very dreadful inference, they always gave us the benefit of the doubt, leaving it open to further knowledge. Some of the things we had grown to accept as perfectly normal or as belonging to our human limitations, they literally could not have believed. And as I have said, we had all of us joined in a tacit endeavor to conceal much of the social status at home. Confound their grandmotherly minds, Terry said. Of course they can't understand a man's world. They aren't human. They're just a pack of f f females. This was after, he had to admit, their parthenogenesis. I wish our grandfatherly minds had managed as well, said Jeff. Do you really think it's to our credit that we have muddled along with all our poverty and disease and the like? They have peace and plenty, wealth and beauty, goodness and intellect. Pretty good people, I think. You'll find they have their faults, too, Terry insisted, and partly in self-defense, we all three began to look for those faults of theirs. We had been very strong on the subject before we got there, in those baseless speculations of ours. Suppose there is a country of women only, Jeff had put it, over and over. What'll they be like?
And we had been cocksure as to the inevitable limitations, the faults and vices of a lot of women. We had expected them to be given over to what we called feminine vanity, frills and furbelows, and we found that they had evolved a costume more perfect than the Chinese dress, richly beautiful when so desired, always useful, of unfailing dignity and good taste. We had expected a dull, submissive monotony and found a daring social inventiveness far beyond our own and a mechanical and scientific development fully equal to ours. We had expected pettiness and found a social consciousness besides which our nations look like quarreling children, feeble-minded ones at that. We had expected jealousy and found a broad sisterly affection, a fair-minded intelligence, to which we could produce no parallel. We had expected hysteria and found a standard of health and vigor, a calmness of temper, to which the habit of profanity, for instance, was impossible to explain. We tried it. All these things even Terry had to admit, but he still insisted that we should find out the other side pretty soon. It stands to reason, doesn't it? He argued. The whole thing's deuced unnatural. I'd say impossible if we weren't in it. And an unnatural condition's sure to have unnatural results. You'll find some awful characteristics. See if you don't. For instance, we don't know yet what they do with their criminals. Some defectives. They're aged. You notice we haven't seen any. There's got to be something. I was inclined to believe that there had to be something, so I took the bull by the horns, the cow, I should say, and asked Somel. I want to find some flaw in all this perfection, I told her flatly. It simply isn't possible that three million people have no faults. We are trying our best to understand and learn. Would you mind helping us by saying what, to your minds, are the worst qualities of this unique civilization of yours? We were sitting together in a shaded arbor in one of those eating gardens of theirs. The delicious food had been eaten, a plate of fruit still before us. We could look out on one side over a stretch of open country, quietly rich and lovely, on the other the garden with tables here and there, far apart enough for privacy. Let me say right here that with all their careful balance of population, there was no crowding in this country. There was room, space, a sunny, breezy freedom everywhere. So Mel set her chin on her hand, her elbow on the low wall beside her, and looked off over the fair land. Of course we have faults, all of us, she said. In one way, you might say that we have more than we used to. That is, our standard of perfection seems to get farther and farther away. But we are not discouraged because our records do show gain, considerable gain. When we began, even with the start of one particularly noble mother, we inherited the characteristics of a long race record behind her. And they cropped out from time to time, alarmingly. But it is, yes, it's quite 600 years since we have had what you call a criminal we have, of course, made it our first business to train out, to breed out, when possible, the lowest types. Breed out, I asked. How could you with parthogenesis? 
If the girl showed the bad qualities, had still the power to appreciate social duty, we appealed to her by that, to renounce motherhood. Some of the few worst types were, fortunately, unable to reproduce. But if the fault was in a disproportionate egotism, then the girl was sure she had the right to have children, even that hers would be better than others. I can see that, I said. And then she would be likely to rear them in the same spirit. That was never allowed, answered Somel quietly. Allowed, I queried? Allowed a mother to rear her own children? Certainly not, said Somel, unless she was fit for that supreme task. This was rather a blow to my previous convictions. But I thought motherhood was for each of you. Motherhood, yes, that is maternity, to bear a child. But education is our highest art, only allowed to our highest artists. Education, I was puzzled. I don't mean education. I mean by motherhood not only child-bearing, but the care of babies. The care of babies involves education and is entrusted only to the most fit, she repeated. Then you separate mother and child, I cried in cold horror, something of Terry's feeling creeping over me. Then there must be something wrong among these many virtues. Not usually, she patiently explained. You see, almost every woman values her maternity above everything else. Each girl holds it close and dear, an exquisite joy, a crowning honor, the most intimate, the most personal, most precious thing. That is, the child-rearing has come to be with us, a culture so profoundly studied, practiced with such subtlety and skill, that the more we love our children, the less we are willing to trust that process to unskilled hands, even our own. But a mother's love, I ventured. She studied my face, trying to work out a means of clear explanation. You told us about your dentist, she said at length. Those quaintly specialized persons who spend their lives filling little holes in other people's teeth even in children's teeth sometimes. Yes, I said, not getting her drift. Does mother love urge mothers with you to fill their own children's teeth or to wish to? Why, of course not, I protested. But that is a highly specialized craft. Surely the care of babies is open to any woman, any mother. We do not think so, she gently replied. Those of us who are the most highly competent fulfill that office, and a majority of our girls eagerly try for it. I assure you, we have the very best. But the poor mother, bereaved of her baby, oh no, she earnestly assured me, not in the least bereaved. It is her baby still. It is with her. She has not lost it. But she is not the only one to care for it. There are others whom she knows to be wiser. She knows it because she has studied as they did, practiced as they did, and honors their real superiority. For the child's sake, she is glad to have for it this highest care. I was unconvinced. Besides, this was only hearsay. I had yet to see the motherhood of her land. If you routinely listen to 
Herland, with a child in your family, you may want to preview this next conversation before you listen to it with them. Just, just a thought. I think this chapter might actually be the chapter that made me love this book when I read it when I was 20. And I think it's the, as I've mentioned before, overdeveloped sense of injustice that I carry with me that made me so attracted to the ideas in this chapter in particular. And I mentioned, if you listened to last week when I played for you the audio of the conversation I had with my father, one of the things I said was that the, the way that they talked about childbirth, the way that Gilman talks about childbirth, had rung bells to me of Brave New World. You, you decant the babies and then they're raised by committee and, and that. And that was certainly how it struck me up to the chapter that we had read when Dad and I sat down and talked. But after reading this chapter, I hope that you are starting to see with me an interesting conflation of stereotypes that we might have in our modern world. And by that, what I mean is this. Stereotypically, and I'm only going with big, broad, generalized stereotypes right now. We'll deal with where those came from and, and what, they, what they say about the people who hold these to be true in a moment. So stereotypically, my understanding is that feminists in this day and age are seen as bra-burning men-haters who way back (laughs) in the late 60s and during the 70s were out there advocating for women to be free of men, be free of the restriction of raising children and have careers and find fulfillment there and that they were or are reacting against traditional notions of femalehood, motherhood, feminine identity that way, and actively promoting either a gender-free or a more masculine version of womanhood, one that's all career and no or or not necessarily any kind of nurturing side with children or, or anything like that. This brings up an interesting contradiction, because at the same time that that gender stereotype was developing, you also had the sexual revolution happening. And as far as I can tell, the people who benefited really from the sexual revolution were men. Because unless you had access to good birth control at the time, which wasn't a guarantee, women who wanted to be free sexually were absolutely risking pregnancy and that meant childbirth because there weren't any options in between not any legal ones so then you have a woman who was trying to be free to be herself and express herself and all of that and now she's got a kid which you know kind of puts the kibosh on the whole free and freedom Thing. So there were some weird layers going on 
in retrospect, in the, the women's movement in the 60s and, and into the 70s. But that's, that's kind of the stereotype, and then an interesting repercussion of that stereotype. On the other hand, you have another stereotype. This would be the stay-at-home mom stereotype again. Stay-at-home moms, let's see, have no ambition, uh, are uneducated or undereducated, or have turned their back on their educations. I'm trying to think of all these ridiculous things that I've heard. Uh, that they're servants to their husbands. Um, uh, you know, we could go on. We've all heard all of these things, right? And neither stereotype is particularly accurate. The stay-at-home moms who I've met don't fit that description. And the feminists who I've met don't fit my earlier description. Erland becomes really interesting now. The first thing that occurred to me while I was listening to this chapter again is that Gilman was writing a book trying to show that if you remove sexuality from the equation, the, the equation of living a meaningful life, living an adult meaningful life, if you remove sexuality from it, you've just solved a whole mess load of problems. And women are finally free to define themselves as complete whole people. Now, there is an enormous argument to be made that if you remove the sexual element, then they are not complete or, or not living complete adult lives, but that we'll deal with that later. But the thing that I thought was really interesting is that the women in Gilman's story are being defined by her against generalizations that can be made about American women at the time in 1915. But the more important one, I think, is Terry. Because Terry, suddenly finding himself in a world without, what's a word for emasculated but for women? Effeminated women. Without, without women who have completely and only ever been defined by feminine qualities, stereotypical feminine qualities, you know, batting eyelashes and lots of feathers and weakness, that when Terry is in a world without those women, he has lost his wholeness, his identity. He is now no longer a whole person, and he looks ridiculous. It's one of those great moments when you think, oh, oh, I wonder if she meant to do that or if that's just kind of a happy accident because without someone to dominate terry starts to look like a nut and van even says people knew back in america people knew what he was like they knew how he treated women and for some women in this chapter they say for some women that was even attractive now there's a week of psychological discussion that we could have over what that says about people but Going back to our book, if what Gilman was setting out to write was kind of a feminist manifesto of, look, when you let women just be women without competing for men, without putting this artificial, she, she talked about how uh, when sexuality is de facto connected to economics, which is what it was for women, you got married and therefore 
started a sexual relationship with a man because you needed financial security. Once you include economics in that equation, there is no normalcy. There is no sense that you could ever have anything even sort of looking like an an equal or a balanced relationship because now you've traded sexuality for economics and that's prostitution and she didn't have very nice things to say about the institution of prostitution so gilman sets this text down to promote her kind of ideal and she knows she's promoting it to an audience so she is not going to broach a couple of subjects she is not going to get into anything but white folks because she knew who she was writing for and she is not even going to come close to talking about lesbian relationships and i i don't even know if you'd call them lesbian relationships a sexual relationship for the women of her land I guess, would be more accurate. She's just not going to go there because the things she wants to focus on are the economics and, I think, importantly, what motherhood should do for a culture and a society. She started building towards this argument before and she's continuing with it now and it'll keep coming up for a while But this idea that in a nation of women where the most wonderful and best thing you can do is control your body and determine when and if you will have a child so that your life and that child's life arrive together at an optimum time for both of you. And then you as a society, have collected together the best people to educate your children collectively and with the future in mind, then how can this not be a perfect world? With motherhood at the center, not children. And I think that this is the important difference. Children are not the center of their world. Motherhood is. Now, we talk a lot about valuing children, but like that Barbara Kingsolver article that I I read a, a couple of episodes ago, in the United States anyway, I don't see much proof of that. I'll tell you, though, when I went to Finland and I got off the plane and I walked next to the playroom where parents would drop their kids off while they were waiting for a plane and then come get them before they boarded so that the kids, you know, didn't whine and cry and fuss because they had a playroom staffed by professional teachers who were trained to care for all different age ranges of children. Or we got on the train in Finland, a double-decker train, beautiful, beautiful train. And my mom and my sister and I all went up to the top level and sat down and our eyes bugged out of our heads because there at the front of that car was a little play area that had toys which were not bolted down and books. It was so clear, immediately, visibly, that this was a country 
and a society and a culture that valued not children exclusively, but families and the nurturing of children, the care of children. And that's very different to me. And that's, you know, that's a long way from paying lip service to something. That's putting your money where your mouth is. That's walking the walk and talking the talk. And so, of course, in uh, relationship to the conversation that I had with my dad and going back and listening to all of that audio myself, I started to think, you know, it's interesting because I can see how, for my dad, the way Herland is described would seem kind of barren and cold. And some of that is, again, because where's the challenge? Where's the conflict? And Gilman wrote about this, too, that it was really, really hard to write a novel about a place like Herland without taking on masculine definitions of what fiction is supposed to be. It's supposed to be, according to her, and I think a lot of other people, it's supposed to be either adventure stories or love stories. But the love stories all serve men. It all takes place, she, t- she had a funny phrase for it, taking place in uh, several mid-youth years. You know, it's like from the age of 16 to 22, and that's all that women get written about is those years when they're pursuing a husband. Before that, they're dead. After that, they're dead. But as far as fiction is concerned, those, those six or eight years are really great years to write about. And so she, she had talked about how incredibly challenging it was to come up with a way to tell this story in a compelling way, in an interesting way, that didn't force it into this predetermined, kind of masculinely set definition of what a novel is supposed to be. And I know I have had moments where I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen in the next chapter? Well, not much. You're going to learn more about Herland. You know, today's chapter, what do we do? We learned about Herland. We saw how completely fish out of water Terry is. And we learned more about the structure of Herland. Oh, and they were given scissors. And when the big action of your chapter is some guys trimming their beards, it's very different. It's, oh, it's like Andrew and I, just a few nights ago, we watched the movie Boyhood with Ethan Hawke and with Patricia Arquette and with this lovely boy that they filmed for 12 years. And you watch everyone age over the course of 12 years. And it's kind of shocking because you can't always tell where the breaks occurred in age because they'd get together, you know, every annually, kind of every year to film. And there are these moments in the movie where you are waiting. You're waiting for a car accident. You know it's going to happen. Or a bunch of boys are in, a ban- in an abandoned house and you know someone is going to get hurt, really hurt. And that it doesn't happen. Ever. Things go wrong and things are hard. And there's stuff that is both happy and unhappy. but those weird Hollywood moments of enormous disaster or life-altering cataclysm, they're, they're not there. We've been trained to look for them in movies because that's what we've come to understand movies do 
in the United States. It's why French films look so weird to us often. <laughs> so we're like, what? But wait a minute, where's the car crash? A friend of mine didn't like boyhood at all because she kept feeling like there was no point. And I said, but the, the point was, that's what life is. Our lives are made up of moments and they go by really fast if you don't pay attention. And if you have children, the speed with which those moments pass you by is extraordinary and heartbreaking and beautiful. And how would life change for us, for women, but also for men, if our main focus was on motherhood and fatherhood, ensuring that our actions and our decisions were based on doing everything we could to make our children's lives and the world that our children inherit as good as possible. Because, as a friend of mine likes to say, if you don't have kids and you don't want to pay for kids' education and things like that, kind of have to wonder, who do you think is going to be your doctor when, when you're older and need a doctor? And if the kids aren't in school and learning and stuff, um, what, what do you think they're going to be doing? And, or, or more appropriately, whose house do you think they're going to be breaking into? From the description of the way that they built their forests and tended their gardens and composted. I mean, these are, we talked about this, what, five years ago on Craft Lid. If we worked within this, this mindset, we would all have gray water systems. We would all have solar. We would all be doing everything we could do to retrofit our homes so that we didn't waste limited resources that our children were going to need. And we didn't suck money out of their mouths that they were going to need for educations or extracurricular activities or whatever. And I guess, I guess maybe I got that idea from Herland years before. I don't know. That's where we're going to end today. Lots to think about. And I, and I need to be very clear about this. Herland is not the book I remember it being when I was 20. It's not even the book I remember it being when I was 38, when I started recording it for LibriVox. And I know that the book isn't the same book because I'm not the same person. But that also means that unlike other books we've read that aren't quite as aimed at women or at me or my age group or my job being a mom right now, this book is unsettling in some ways that I hadn't anticipated. And so you hear me talking through the book with you, sure, but my opinions about the book are changing pretty much with every week. If you are finding that it's having that effect on you as well, please, please feel free to call in and share some of your thoughts because I, I think it's a, it's a really important book to be reading, especially right now with some of the stuff that's going on in the United States. I don't know if this is happening anywhere else, if these conversations are happening anywhere else, but we're hearing really weird things 
coming out of both women's and men's mouths about women, about women and simple anatomy physiology. I mean, it's some bizarre things are being said out in public. And then we're reading this book. So the phone number again, area code 206 350 If you have a second and you have an opinion, call and share it. And don't worry if your opinion contradicts mine or if you disagree on some point, please share because it is very possible that by the time you record it, I will already be feeling the way you're feeling too. (laughs) Who knows? It's an interesting, interesting text to be reading right now. Also, know that there are only nine seats left for the Craft Lit Tour coming up this October. If you or a friend are interested or even think that you might be, please, 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 please call Diane. Make a reservation. Your deposit is completely refundable through June. There's no risk to you. It's all good. Uh, You can get to Diane and get a copy of the brochure by going to craftlit.com and clicking on the lovely picture of the countryside with some sheep in it over on the left-hand sidebar. Don't forget to subscribe at iTunes if you can. Have your friends subscribe at iTunes if you can. And the link to the demographic survey is still on the show notes. This is something that will help Craftlit bring more and better audio to you in the future. Thanks so much. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlit? Leave a review for us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or subscribe at Subbable. If one audiobook with benefits a week isn't enough for you, you can also sign up for a premium membership. There is a streaming option that sends the premium audio through your smartphone or tablet, or there's a downloading option where you can download the files into your computer's hot little hands. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.